You are listening to audio from Hyde Park Baptist Church in Lumberton, North Carolina. You can join us each Sunday morning at 1045 Eastern Standard Time at hydepark.online.church. Turn to 1 Peter chapter 2 if you don't mind. 1 Peter chapter 2. We're going to be wrapping up uh, this uh, series we've been in. We've been talking about basically our, our foundation as a church who we are, where we're going, uh, what we're going to be about in the days and months and years ahead. We've talked about the gospel. We've talked about our mission. We've talked about koinonia, fellowship. We've talked about serving together, the importance of gathering together. Uh, We've highlighted our six core values as a church, and that is prayer, Bible teaching, fellowship, serving, multiplication, and then our last factor today is worship. And the reason we've spent time walking through this is because next year, in 2022, we have some tremendous missions opportunities that God has, well, dropped into our lap. And remember, we are a family of Jesus followers on mission together. And next year is going to provide for us some tremendous opportunities, but quite frankly, we're not going to be able to do it unless we do it together. And if we don't do it for the sake of the gospel, then why are we doing it? And if we're not doing it as an outflow of worship under God and under Christ and the change that he's made in our life, then, then we're, we're, we're busy about things that have no or little importance whatsoever. So we, we had to go over this now because, quite frankly, starting in January, uh, there's going to be some new opportunities that you're going to have to be involved with as we're on mission together. Let's take a look at 1 Peter chapter 2. And I want to read through these verses um, before we kind of get down into them. So 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 1. So put away all malice and all deceit and hypocrisy and envy and all slander. Like newborn infants long for the pure spiritual milk, that by it you may grow up. Now there's that phrase again. We have we've kind of come around that phrase for the last three or four weeks. Growing up in Christ. Here he says, grow up into salvation. If indeed you have tasted that the Lord is good. As you come to him, a living stone rejected by men, but in the sight of God chosen and precious, you yourselves like living stones are being built up as a spiritual house to be a holy priesthood, to offer spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. For it stands in scripture, behold, I'm laying in Zion a stone, a cornerstone chosen and precious, and whoever believes in him will not be put to shame. So the honor is for you who believe, but for those who do not believe, the stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone and a stone of stumbling and a rock of offense. They stumble because they disobey the word as they were destined to do. But you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession, that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness and into his marvelous light. Once you were not a people... But now you are God's people. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. Beloved, I urge you as sojourners and exiles to abstain from the passions of the flesh which wage war against your soul. Keep your conduct among the Gentiles honorable so that when they speak against you as evildoers, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day of visitation. Father, we pause this morning and we say thank you. Thank you for your goodness and your grace. Thank you for your faithfulness to us. Thank you, Father, for all the ways this past week that you have moved on our behalf, that you have worked in a thousand ways and even more. And, Father, we're grateful that you have provided, that you've cared for us tangibly in ways that sometimes we don't even recognize as from your hand. Father, we realize this morning there are many connected to our fellowship and to many other churches across our community that are struggling yet again with COVID. There are many that are at home this morning that can't be here and can't be at their other churches that that, that they fellowship with simply because they're sick. And Father, we lift them up. And if they're watching online this morning, I pray that they know that we love them, that we're praying for them, and we're lifting them up. Father, we pray for your guidance and your word this morning. We pray for wisdom. And Father, as we try to just briefly look at what worship really is, that we would worship you that we would adore you, that we would exalt you. 
And Father, we, 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 we would never relegate that to just something on Sunday mornings. Father, we love you and we thank you. It's in your name we pray. Amen. Several years ago when I was associate pastor, the uh, church had um, set it up where this southern gospel group was going to come and do a uh, performance on a Saturday. Um, and this group had been to our church before. Uh, it was well-known quartet. I won't, I won't tell you who they were, but well-known. And the last time that they'd been at our church, we had several hundred people that came out for this event. Well, it just so happened that the weekend that this was scheduled, the senior pastor was, he was either on vacation or on a mission trip, I can't remember. And as associate pastor, you always have this little slash at the end of your title and your kind of your responsibilities. It's that kind of that extra fine print that says, uh, whatever the senior pastor tells you to do, basically. And that particular weekend, it was going to be my responsibility to kind of facilitate this event, uh, to have everything set up and ready to go. And um, I had been in the ministry long, full-time ministry long, so I didn't really know what I was doing, but I, I knew that my music director guy knew what he was doing, so I was just going to be available to help out. Well, we had the gym set up, and, and we had... I don't know, seven or 800 chairs set up because we expected a, a pretty large crowd for this event. And The team gets there. They, they drive in this big, humongous bus, and they bring all their equipment in, and they're setting up. And um, They were going to do a complete run-through, a practice, and get all their you know, sound equipment correct and everything tuned in. And So I'm sitting out there just kind of you know, listening to their, to their set and listening to their practice, and there was this one moment in their practice set where they bring a microphone. It looked like one of these old-style, old-timey microphones like you used to see back in the day. They bring this thing out, and they set it in the middle of the stage, and all their musicians and all the, the quartet get around this microphone, and they're going to sing a whole set of songs a cappella, no music. And I'm, I'm listening, and I'm setting stuff up, and I'm thinking, that's pretty cool, you know? And so they, they go through the whole set. They practice all those songs, and then it's time for the concert to begin. So the build's full of people, and they're going through their set, and we had a, a, we had a break, a little intermission, and we came back. And when we came back, they sung a couple songs, and then the lead guy says this. He says, hey, guys, is it okay if we do something different? We, we don't normally do this. We don't, we don't normally do what we're getting ready to do, but I just feel the Holy Spirit is leading us to do something different today. And I'm like, huh, I wonder what they're going to do. Well, they go back and they bring that microphone out and they set it in the middle of the stage. And they said, now, we don't normally do this when we're at churches like this, but we just felt led by the Holy Spirit that today we're going to sing some songs a cappella. Would y'all like that? And the crowd's like, yeah, we'd love that. I'm sitting over here on the front row and my temperature's going up. Do you know why my temperature's going up? You know why I'm getting a little upset? Because that guy just lied to everybody in the room. I'm, I'm talking like outright lied. Because what they portrayed to the congregation as something they were doing spur of the moment, they hadn't planned it, the Holy Spirit led them to do it, was actually completely planned, completely rehearsed, and completely part of their worship set. Now, I'm sitting on the front row, and I'm trying to wrap my mind around this, and I'm, on the one hand, I'm a couple parts mad, and on the other hand, I'm like, what just happened here? Well, we know what happened. We were lied to. Now, why would somebody do that? It's because they had predetermined in their mind what kind of response they wanted from the congregation. So they decided to set this thing up and actually lie to the people who were there to manipulate the people to do something that they wanted them to do, to respond in some particular way. Now, it's not to say that what they did wasn't, it was bad. I mean, it was, it was great music. They, they did a good job. But for me, in that moment, knowing that they had lied to the entire six or 700 people just killed it for me immediately. It was fake. I would love to say that that was a isolated experience. But folks, I'm here to tell you this morning, there's a whole lot of confusion about what worship actually is. And let me tell you what it's not. Manipulating you to get you to do something we think you ought to do to make us feel better about ourselves. Pastor Bobby and myself, we work hard each week to think through what we're doing on Sunday morning. We're, we're thinking about this Sunday morning months ago. And one of the things that we really work hard to do is to not introduce something manipulative, to, to introduce something into here to just simply get a, some kind of emotional response. 
Because here's the conviction that Bobby and I have and all of our leaders have and the many of you have. Our conviction is, is that the gospel is enough, that God's word is enough. We don't have to add to it. We don't have to take away from it. We don't have to manipulate you. We just simply invite the Holy Spirit to work in your life. We present the word both in song and in both in teaching, and we let the Holy Spirit do the work. We're not here to manipulate you because we believe what the Holy Spirit can do in your life. And trust me when I tell you, he can do far more in your life than I could ever do. So this morning, I want to talk about a little bit is this final core value of our church is worship. And as soon as I threw that word out, the first thing many people think about, well, that's music. It's, it's what we do on Sunday morning. It's, it's when we sing together. Well, yes, that's part of it. But it's just that. It's part of it. Maybe you've made this statement. I've, I've made it before. I haven't made it in a long time, but I have made this statement. Well, I'm going to go to church and I'm going to get my cup filled up. Wait a minute. What about Monday and Tuesday and Wednesday and Thursday? What, what about daily worshiping, daily sitting at the feet of Jesus, daily getting in his word? I, I can tell you right now that if your concept of worship is simply what happens here on 45 minutes to an hour on Sunday morning, there's a real reason why you're struggling on Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday, Friday, and Saturday. Why is it you're so anxious? Why is it you're so worried? Why is it you, you've got the weight of the world on your shoulders and you can't wait to get here on Sunday to unload that. When I'm telling you that what we see as a concept of Scripture, a concept of worship from Scripture, is that you have access to the creator of the universe by what Jesus did on your behalf. And if we're only tapping into that on Sunday morning, you are missing out on the beauty and the glory of worship, whether I'm in my car or whether I'm alone with God, with God's Word open, whether I'm with my family, whether I'm looking at the blue sky, whether I'm looking at the flowers, whether I'm feeling the breeze that's blowing through this parking lot this morning, all of that is opportunities to worship because it all reminds me of this holy God who put it all together and not only put it all together, but called me out of darkness in the light. I get to worship every day. And Sunday's not the place where I come to get filled up. No, it's the place where the worship I've been doing all week overflows here. Peter, and yes, it's that Peter that we know well, right? He's the guy that ended up eating sandal leather quite a bit when he was with Jesus. He loved sticking his foot in his mouth. Yes, he's the one that denied Jesus, but yes, he is the one that got to see the transfiguration up on the mount with Jesus, right? He's the one that got to be with Jesus in those moments of just incredible teaching, incredible things, miracles that Jesus did, Peter was right there. And yes, Peter's got his hangups just like I do. But by the time you read 1st and 2nd Peter, when you read about him in the book of Acts, you see the change. But when you read 1st and 2nd Peter, you really see a man transformed. This is not the same guy that was denying Jesus there in that courtyard. Not at all. And, and Peter is writing a letter, two letters, to a group of Jewish people who've become Christ followers who've had to disperse all over Asia Minor because of persecution. Now, what's interesting about the background of this book is if, if this book is written about the time I think it was, it was right around the time a guy by the name of Nero was in charge. And it is possible, and there's a lot of different opinions on it, but it's possible that Peter was writing these letters at about the same time that Rome burned. And if you know the, the story there, there was a fire that broke out in Rome. And some people believe that Nero, the king, was the one who actually set the fire. Some say, no, it was simply an accident. But whatever happened is a large portion of the city of Rome burned. A lot of people lost their lives. After about three days, the fire started dying down again. They thought it was over. Then all of a sudden, it resurges back and then burns for another several days. Well, what happens in that event is Nero takes this as an opportunity because he hated Christianity, hated it with a passion. He takes that opportunity to blame the fire on the Christians. Now, again, I don't know if this was written exactly that same time, but even if it's written under Nero's reign, Nero was an evil, deeply, deeply evil man. And no doubt persecution had increased. But if it was written during the time where Nero's saying, yep, the Christians did it, you can imagine while everybody's running for their lives. So Peter writes this letter to encourage them, to strengthen them, 
But in chapter 2, he's going to remind them of who. And when we're reminded of who we are in Christ, the natural result of that is worship. So there's some factors that, that Peter brings out here that I want you to see this morning that connects directly to our core value of worship. So that we may understand worship in a much broader sense than just music and just what happens on Sunday morning. So let's pick it up in chapter 1. I need to back up in chapter 1 to give you some context. So let's talk about the motivation for worship. Back up in verse 22. He says, having purified your souls by your obedience to the truth for a sincere brotherly love, love for one another earnestly from a pure heart, since you have been born again, not of, but of imperishable, through the living and abiding word of God, for all flesh is like grass, all its glory like flower of, flowers of the grass, the grass withers and the flower falls, but the word of the Lord remains forever. So what is Peter talking about? Peter's saying that in your walk, in your life, everything that you touch, everything that you smell, everything that you see, everything that you experience with your faculties, with your senses, is all passing away. It's all dying. It's all failing. It's all getting older. It's all rusting. It's all, it's all corrupt. You know why that is? Because of the fall. That the house you live in, the car you drove in here in, the, the food that's in your cabinets right now at home, doesn't matter what the expiration date is, doesn't matter if you've got a bunker full of food that's supposed to last 25 years, that food will eventually go bad. Not just the food and not just our home and not just our car, but you yourself. You know this. As you're getting older, you're starting to feel it, aren't you? Your body's breaking down. God has set in his mind a day on which your life will end. Death, the result of the fall. And what Peter says here is that all that we see, all that we touch, all that we experience is all passing away. However, that salvation that you experience, that coming out of darkness into light, that transformation that Christ did in your life, that thing that we talk about, justification, where God says you are no longer under his wrath, that moment you put your faith in Jesus, that moment he changed you. Single moment in time, when you put your faith in Jesus, Peter says that is imperishable. It will never go bad. It will never, it will never go weak on you. It will, it will never corrupt. It will never rust or, or get destroyed. It will always be at work in your life, even beyond this life into the next. It is imperishable. You know why? Because it's connected to an imperishable Savior, one who death couldn't even beat. And, and our salvation is found in him. And so therefore, we believe, and we've already talked about it weeks ago, we talked about that when you truly put your faith in Jesus, and you've truly come from darkness into life, Jesus said, you are in the palm of the Father's hand, and nothing, get this, nothing, say nothing, nothing shall pluck you out. Isn't that amazing? Paul goes even further. He says in Romans 8, that what shall separate us from the love of God? Nothing. Neither height nor depth, no cre nothing, nothing created can separate you. So why does Peter take us back to this place? Because this is the motivation for worship. Because if you've come out of death and the life, there is no reason for your head to be down. There is no reason, you know, as my mom said, turn that frown upside down. There's no reason for us to be walking around with our heads down as though we've lost everything. When in fact, we've gained everything through Christ. He says, we've not gained something that is perishable. Don't walk around as though your salvation is perishable. That it's going to go bad or maybe already has. It's imperishable. And he says, this word, and this word is the good news that was preached to you. That's good news. It's good news that I don't, that my salvation is not based on me. It's good news that I'm not holding on to God. It's God holding on to me. It's good news that God's grace is sufficient, that even when I foul things up, he'll forgive me and restore me. It's good news when I can call out to God as dad. It's good news when I can come into his presence knowing that I am unholy, broken, and unrighteous, and in my righteousness I feel rags. but yet God says, come on in, son. Let's have a talk. That's good news. It's good news that the Holy Spirit lives inside of me. It's good news that my eternity is set. It's good news that Jesus has gone to prepare a place for me, and he's going to come and receive me unto himself, that where he is, I will be also. I can go on and on with this, but I know we've got a time limit here. But you get where I'm going here, right? Imperishable. Beautiful. Amazing good news. 
And it's out of that place, it's out of that place that we worship. Notice in chapter 2, he says this, so put away all malice and all deceit, hypocrisy, envy, and all slander. In other words, Peter simply says what all the other New Testament writers are saying, that when you come in contact with Jesus and he changes your life, your life really is changed. You're no longer that angry person you used to be. You're, you're no longer that person driven by greed and lust. You're no longer that person because that's what Jesus delivered you out of. Now, that, does that mean we don't struggle? Well, yeah, you might struggle with it. But if we're surrendering our lives to Christ and obedient to him, he gives us victory over those things. Peter says you live differently. He says, and notice this, like verse 2, he says, like newborn infants, long for the pure spiritual milk, that by it you may grow up. Now, when we looked at the letter to the church at Corinth, and we, we talked about 1 Corinthians chapter 3, and we talked about discipleship. Remember, Paul used that in kind of a derogatory sense towards the church at Corinth. He says, I gave you meat, and I expected you to grow up, but I come back and find, or I hear that you're, you're still a bunch of spiritual infants. Peter's not using it in a derogatory sense here. He's saying, just like a newborn longs to be fed with milk, you, as a newborn believer, you, as a follower of Jesus, you should long to grow up, to grow deep, to grow into Christ. That comes with salvation, that desire to want to follow, that desire to want to follow him, the desire to want to live differently. And then he says this, he, he qualifies it, he says, if indeed you have tasted that the Lord is good. I have tasted and found that the Lord is more than good. He's awesome. He's better than Netflix. He's better than Amazon Prime. He's better than a bank full of money. He's better than a brand new car. He's better than a house in Beverly Hills. He's better than anything I've ever experienced in my life. And it hasn't lessened, if anything, it's gotten better as I've gotten older. I have tasted and I have found that he is good. So when it comes to worship, when it comes to worshiping the Most High God, you're not going to have to manipulate me to do that. You're not going to have to pry me towards worship. You're not going to have to convince me that that's what I need to be doing because that's what I want to do. Do I always do it perfectly? No. Do I sometimes let other gods get in there and take over my time? Yes. But I come back to this place that I once was in darkness, now I'm in light. I've tasted that the Lord is good. And he's changed my life. Let me tell you about two men. And these two men had two different pursuits. And the reality is, is that whatever you give your life to, whatever you worship, that's what you're going to become. So, so if, if your life is about the pursuit of money, you're going to become greedy. If, if your life is about sexual pursuits, you're going to be filled with lust and you're going to become just like what you're pursuing. Peter is going to remind us here that Whatever we worship, whatever we're motivated to worship, that's exactly who we're going to become. Charles Darwin wrote an autobiography. Now, Charles Darwin, he was the one that came up with the idea of evolution, that all of us are just a cosmic accident, the universe is a cosmic accident, there is no God involved, that through scientific investigation, we can explain everything. So we don't even need God in part of the equation. And Charles Darwin gave his entire life to this concept. And he writes an autobiography. And I want you to hear what he says in that autobiography. He says, quote, my mind seems to have become a kind of a machine for grinding out general laws out of a large collection of facts. So Darwin says that the deeper he goes into this, the deeper he went into his scientific investigations on how the cosmos and the world began, he says the deeper he goes is the more he becomes like a machine. And that machine is just trying to crack out more facts and more facts that supports his own presuppositions or ideas that he had. We know that at one point, Charles Darwin really loved poetry. He loved Shakespeare. But the harder he grinds in scientific fact, the less he enjoys anything of life. As a matter of fact, he says this, he says this loss, referring to what he's lost in this pursuit of science. He says this loss is a loss of happiness. He said, I became a withered leaf for every subject except science. He gives this imagery of like a dying plant. 
And he says, whether it was poetry or music or relationships with other people, if you study his life, you know that he completely isolated his life. He was so consumed with getting the answers apart from God that he says he became a withered leaf. You see, whatever you worship, that's what you're going to become. Let me tell you about Jonathan Edwards. Jonathan Edwards, a theologian, listen to what he says. He says, quote, resolved to cast my soul on the Lord Jesus Christ, to trust and confide in him, and to consecrate myself wholly to him. So Jonathan Edwards says that he, he gave his life totally and completely to Jesus. And he then reflects on the change that that's made in his life. The influence that Christ has had in his life. And then he says this, he says this, he says, it brought, quote, it brought an inexpressible purity, brightness, and peacefulness, and ravishment to the soul. In other words, it made the soul like a field or a garden, end quote. You get that? Jonathan Edwards says that following Jesus, worshiping Jesus, growing up in Jesus, turned out to be like a, a fresh garden that's budding and there's life there. He says it's like a, a flower in a garden that's, that's healthy and growing and multiplying. He says, following Jesus, because I've tasted and I've found that he's good, has changed my life to such a degree that my life really is not about anything else other than him. Charles Darwin says, I'm a withered leaf. Jonathan Edwards says, I'm like a field or a garden, renewed day by day. So we have a motivation for worship, and whatever you worship, that's what you're going to become. And now let's take a look at the manner of worship. And there's two factors, two factors that Peter brings to our attention. Look at verse 4. He says, as you come to him as a living stone, rejected by men, but in the sight of God chosen and precious, you yourselves, like living stones, are being built up as a spiritual house to be a holy priesthood, to offer spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. Peter uses imagery here that these Jewish believers are going to immediately get, that you and I as Gentiles don't always get. He uses imagery here that brings their attention back to this, this holy people called Israel, these people that were called out of the world to be light to the world, and then God gives them a land, gives them a city, gives them a temple, so that the rest of the world looks at them and says, well, you know what, we've heard about the gods of Egypt, we've heard about the gods of Baal, we've heard about all these other gods, but there's something about the Israelite nation, something about how they worship, something about how they love one another, something about how they, they live their lives that says to me, their God, Jehovah God, that God is different than every other God. So for these Jewish believers who've put their faith in Jesus, Peter describes Jesus as a living stone rejected by men. And later on, he's going to refer to Jesus as a cornerstone, just as Isaiah referred to him. And he's going to say this living stone was rejected by men. The very people that should have embraced Jesus as Messiah rejected. The same people who should have recognized that Jesus is fulfilling what the Old Testament prophets were saying, they reject him. Because he's not the kind of Messiah they wanted. I mean, he's hanging out with tax collectors and fishermen. He's touching people with leprosy. No way he can be Messiah. So they reject him. But that same living stone that was rejected by men was precious to God, chosen by God, given by God. In the Godhead Trinity in eternity past, Jesus comes to earth, lays down his life. Philippians 2 says he lowers himself. Born in Bethlehem, which we're celebrating this month. It says, you yourselves, like living stones, the living stone Jesus, now we, and I told you this last week, I don't use the term Christians very much, but when I do, I want to make sure I under, we all understand. Little Christs, that we are to represent. We are hands and feet of Jesus living in the world, representing him and dwelt by him. Paul said, seated in the heavenlies with him in Ephesians 1. Peter says this. 
He says that you are living stones and you're being built up into a spiritual house. Now, these Jewish believers think, wow, what a beautiful illustration. Because for the Jewish family, even those who had not put their faith in Jesus, Jerusalem, the temple, the festivals, the high days, God had built that into their life so that that corporately they were worshiping God. Corporately they were coming together as families, not isolated, but coming together. And they're remembering those high days, those days where God intervened, the Passover where God intervenes. They're remembering all of this. And they're worshiping God together. And these Christian believers, these believers who were once Jewish who've now put their faith in Jesus, they're looking at this imagery that Peter's getting and they're going, wow, what a beautiful, amazing picture that all of us, every one of us as followers of Jesus are part of this household that God's building. And then he goes even further. He says, you're a holy priesthood. Oh my goodness. Holy priesthood? Yeah, get this. As a follower of Jesus, you've got access to God. You've got access. Remember a couple of weeks ago, we talked about that veil being torn where God says, come in. For 1,500 years, God says, stay away. For 1,500 years, God says, you, you stay back. Only the priest can come in here. He's got he's to follow my statutes to the letter. And he's got to come in here with some blood. We talked about all that. And then when Jesus dies, that veil is torn. And you know what God says? God says, come on in. Isn't that amazing? I'm never going to get over that. That the creator of the universe says to me, come on in, son, let's sit down and let's talk. Let's commune together. I've got some things I need to say to you. These believers who are dispersed because of persecution, Peter tells them not only their spiritual house being built together, but their holy priesthood. And out of that priesthood, what are they to do? They're to offer spiritual sacrifices. Now we know he's not talking about go out to the flock of lambs and find a lamb. That's not what he's talking about. He's talking about as believers, as followers of Jesus, now we are to offer back to God a sacrificial life. This is the first aspect of the manner of worship. We have the motivation for worship, but now we have the manner of worship. What is the manner of worship? Sacrifice. Because that God modeled sacrifice for us in giving his only son to die publicly between two thieves without any clothes on, naked before the world, bleeding to death, and even in that, saying, Father, forgive them, they don't even know what they're doing. God sacrificed his best, and you know what he does? He says, when you've experienced that kind of gift of salvation, when you have tasted and seen that the Lord is good, the only natural response is to give him praise and worship and exalt his name as a lifestyle, not just a Sunday morning thing. What does it mean to give a sacrifice of worship. I'll give you a few examples of what that looks like. First of all, sacrificial worship. Worship, by its very definition, is a sacrifice. Well, if we're not offering animals, what are we offering? Well, first of all, we're going to offer that which cost us something. You remember in the Old Testament, they were told, if you're going to go out there in your flock and you're going you're to choose a lamb, you're going to bring that lamb for sacrifice, don't you dare Go out there and pick some lamb that's half sick with a broken leg getting ready to die anyway. You know why that is? Because that's not a sacrifice. It's not worship. You're giving God your leftovers. You're giving God that which cost you nothing when God gave you something that cost him everything. Does that make sense at all? So the act of worship is saying that I'm going to give something up. It may be that tomorrow morning... You give up some time. You, you set the clock a little earlier. The response that I often get when I encourage folks to get in God's word daily is I don't have time. What does that say about our sacrifice there? What, what does it say about our priorities? It says something, doesn't it? Worship is giving something back to God that actually costs us something. Whether that's a financial gift to somebody in need. Whether that's cooking a meal and taking it over to a neighbor who's just lost a loved one. But folks, we are far too busy. You know why we don't do this? It's because we're too busy. And if you're too busy, take a look at what you're giving your life to and you'll find a false god there. That's what you'll find. You'll find an idol. Because something has your attention and it may not be him. 
And that's why you're casting your leftovers to him because you're giving your best to something less than. Did you get that? If your life is prioritized around something other than God and the gift that he's given you in salvation, if you've tasted Jesus and he found him to be good, then our life is to be lived out for him. And if there's something coming between us and him, it's less than him. And the reason you don't have anything left over for him is because the best you've got is going to something less than. We need to identify it. We need to repent of it. We need to cut it out of our life. Secondly, secondly, so that which costs us something and also that which is offered with the right heart attitude. You see, what happens so often in the local church is we get caught up in rituals Israel, Israel did the same thing. You look at the minor prophets and what they wrote to the nation of Israel. What you'll find out is they'll say, they'll say, I, God is sick to death of your offerings. He's sick to death of these things that you're doing, that you're doing simply out of ritual without a heart that's been changed. And here's the scary things, folks. We can go through the rituals, feel kind of good about it, all the while our heart is cold, indifferent, rebellious, disobedient, that should scare all of us. Then we get satisfied just going through rituals. And we say, oh, I went to worship. I went through the rituals. Walk right out of this place. Go right back to rebellion. Go right back to disobedience. And wait for our next Sunday to get our little inoculation of religion. It's a dangerous place to be living. He says, not only that which costs us something, but that which is offered with the right heart attitude. And then he also says, what we find in the New Testament, is we're to do it with true love and adoration. No other gods. Our, our attention is not divided among something else. How many times have you set aside time to pray? You say, okay, I'm, I'm going to start a schedule. Maybe you do it the first year, you're going to make some kind of New Year's commitment. You're going to, okay, 15 minutes every morning. I'm going to start with 15 minutes. I'm going to do 15 minutes. I'm going to do it consistently. What happens when you go into that 15 minutes? Maybe this only happens to me. Phone starts ringing, dogs barking. You start thinking, your mind starts wandering off on other things. You start thinking about your schedule. You start thinking about the good ministry you need to do that day. And the next thing you know, you spend 15 minutes planning your day but not spending time with the Lord. Why do you think that happens? It's because Satan knows. The forces of darkness know that if you ever tap into that kind of love and that kind of strength and that kind of presence, it's going to change who you are. And wouldn't you know that Satan would love to introduce anything he can, even some good things in that moment, to keep you distracted on lesser things? Sure he would. Absolutely he will. So worship is something that costs us something. Worship is something that was done with a right heart attitude. It's something done out of true love and devotion. No other gods before us. And it's given continuously. As you look at the imagery and what we're going to see in verse 9 here in just a moment, Peter gives this imagery of that temple worship and the priesthood. He knew it was something that was going on all the time. There was always work going on at the temple. There was always ministry going on. There was always service and opportunities to worship and helping people draw close to God through the temple practices. And it gives this idea of this continual action of worship. And as people who've been reborn, people who've tasted that Jesus is good, it's not something we just give on Sunday. If your worship only consists of what happens here on Sunday morning, then something else has your attention. If your worship during the week is non-existent, then something else has your attention. Something else is prying its way into your life. How much time are we spending online? How much time are we spending watching entertainment? How much time are we spending with this stuff? And then we dare say we don't have any time. Given continuously, not just on Sunday. Paul made a really strong statement about this in Colossians chapter 3. You know, what, you know what Paul said to the church of Colossae? He said, let everything you do be done as you're doing it unto the Lord, as an offering of worship by the Lord. So get this. When you punch in the factory tomorrow, when you, when you walk onto the factory floor tomorrow and you punch that time clock, or you go back to the dealership, or you go back to the school, or you go back to the administrative offices downtown, or you go back to being a police officer, whatever it is, whatever your profession is, guess what? Work is worship. Giving our hands and our abilities 
to, to build something, to provide a service, that is a work as Christ followers. We do that with excellence, not just because of responsibility, but we do it in response to a holy God who's given us the opportunity to earn, earn a living and given us health to be able to do it. Man, Paul says that let everything we do be an act of worship back to God. There's a guy by the name of William Borden. He was the son of a, of a wealthy father who had a mining company in Pennsylvania. And man, this family had some big money. And when William was graduating high school, he, he went to the most prestigious boarding school. Everybody was expecting William to be next in line to take over the mining empire. Money was no option, no, no issue. They, they had all they could ever need. And so as a gift to their son, they give him a, a trip around the world for his graduation gift. And, and William had never been anywhere. So he, he leaves home and he goes on this big journey. And this is back in the 1800s, so it wasn't like getting on a plane. So it's traveling by ship. It was going to be a long journey. He was so excited to be able to do this. But when he gets out there, he finds out something. He learns something that not all of the world lived like he had the privilege of living. He finds that people are starving to death. He finds that people are hurting everywhere he goes. And now he's got this moment of crisis in his life. On the one hand, he had everything that he wanted, but the majority of the world didn't have it. And he's wrestling with those big life questions that maybe you're wrestling with about if there's a God who's loving and all-powerful, then where is he in this place? And, and, and William begins to wrestle with all that, and eventually William hears the gospel, and eventually William is changed and transformed by the good news of the gospel. Well, he continues on his journey, and the next thing you know, he begins to get more and more involved in missions because he sees the problem, and he sees that, that the gospel is the answer to that problem. And one day, he writes home, and he tells his parents that he's decided to become a missionary. Well, the response of the family was not good at all. What a waste. You could go to an Ivy League school. You, could, you can go to Princeton. You can go to Harvard. You can do anything you want. And plus, you've got all the money. You've got this empire. This, this is all what you're supposed to be. And, and William said, no, it's not. What I'm supposed to be is a missionary. And his family was very upset with him. Well, in his journeys, what turned into a, a trip has now turned into to missionary work. So he stays out and he's going from place to place and, and serving people and sharing the gospel. And at one point he's, he's leading a Bible study and he, and he writes in the fly leaf of his Bible, no reserve. In other words, William says, I'm not holding anything back. Everything that I am, I'm giving to the cause of Christ. Kind of like what Paul said. Paul said, I, I, I've, I seek to know nothing other than Jesus Christ and him crucified. 1 Corinthians chapter 2. Later on, when he would get more pressure to come back home and more pressure to come back and do what the family saw, saw that he needed to do, later on, and another time in his Bible, he writes these words under no reserve. He says, no retreat. He says, no retreat. You, you hear a man who's growing up in Christ. I'm not turning back now. This is what God's called me to do. He ends up in Cairo, and he catches meningitis. And there's no hope for him. 25 years old. He knows he's going to die. He's separated from his family. And the last words that he writes in the flyleaf of his Bible, he had no reserve, no retreat. You know what the last thing he wrote? No regrets. That sounds like a life that takes worship as something we do daily, not once a week. Look at what Peter says on down. Peter's going to give us the case for Christ here. And he's going to say in verse 6, he says, For it stands in Scripture, Behold, I am laying in Zion a stone, a cornerstone, chosen and precious, and whoever believes in him will not be put to shame. That's Isaiah chapter 28, verse 16. And then Peter says this, So the honor is for you who believe, but for those who do not believe, and listen to this verse. He quotes Psalm 118.22. The stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. And then he quotes Isaiah 8.14. He says, a stone of stumbling and a rock of offense. And here's what Peter's saying. Peter comes back and he says, okay, let's go back to the motivation for worship. And he says, one of two realities is true. Either Jesus is your cornerstone or he's your stumbling block. 
Either Jesus is what your life is about, or he is an offense to you. I found out, and I see this more and more now, that when you bring Jesus up in a conversation, it seems as though more people are getting offended than want to have the conversation. Now, 30 years ago, when you brought Jesus up in Robinson County, you could have all kinds of conversations about Jesus. Nobody seemed to be really offended. But now, especially among younger people, among younger millennials, Gen Z, bring Jesus up, and there's almost like this, sure, you're not going to talk about Jesus. That's, man, that's offensive. Well, yeah, he is. The cross is offensive. The gospel's offensive. Peter says, either he's your cornerstone or he's your stumbling block. What does it mean to be a cornerstone? You read all the different commentaries, and, and, and here, here's where we come down. And I think both are equally true. He's On one hand, the cornerstone, that's the first stone you would lay on the foundation of a building. And every other stone would be laid, lined up to that cornerstone. And that fits in perfectly with what Peter says, that Jesus being the living stone and us being living stones, we are lay, our life is to be laid, aligned with him. He's our example. We live and we grow up into Christ. He's our example. So it's the, the most important stone laid in the building, in the foundation. It's that first stone that's laid. But then there's another group that says, no, 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 no. It's not the first stone. It's the last stone. It's the, it's the capstone. And you put the capstone up on top of the wall to kind of tie the walls together. Well, here's what I think. I think they're both equally true. Jesus, on the one hand, is the cornerstone. He is the one by which all of our lives is to be laid against. But he's also the capstone which ties everything together. It's in Christ that everything is held together, makes sense. And quite frankly, the universe is held together by him. So listen to what Peter says in verse 9. He says, you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession, that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. Man, that's a beautiful thing to think of. He says, again, using these very these terms that these Jewish believers would have immediately understood. He's already said you're a priesthood. He's already said that you're a spiritual house that's being built together. He says you're a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession. All of that is true. And here is the response that flows out of that. Remember, motivated by who we are in Christ to action, to worship. And notice what he says, that you may proclaim the excellences of him who called you out of darkness in the light. Chosen race. You have access to the Father. Doesn't matter what your background is. It doesn't matter what your religion was. Doesn't matter what your socioeconomic is. God has brought you into the family of God through Jesus Christ, through his death and through his resurrection. You are a brand new person. You have a family now. It's called the church. And through this spiritual household that God is building, you have access to a holy God. You are his possession. You were bought with a price. That price was Jesus dying on a cross. You've been purchased with a price. So therefore, you are no longer your own. You belong to him. And as a result, we proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness in the light. Israel was given the task to be different from the nations around them. You read the Old Testament, they fail miserably. We, as God's people, have been called to be light to a dark world, separated from the world, to be light to a world that desperately needs it. And yes, we failed also. Peter says, I have called you out of darkness so that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who gave you life. What does that look like? Well, if, if God is our king, if Jesus is our king, he's the one we're bowing to. He's, he's what our life is about. He's got to come up at some point, folks. He, he's got to come up in our life. He's got to come up in our conversations. What God is doing is goodness, his answered prayers, the difference he's made in your life, who you were before Christ saved you, who you are now. All of that stuff has got to come up in your life. It just has to. Why? Because he's such a big portion. He is the portion of your life. He's what your life is about. If he is who you're bowing to, if he is your God and you've got all the idols out, then this has to come up. The excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into light. And living with the conviction, living changed and differently so that the world may see that the God you follow, the God you believe in, the God you worship is true and he's real. 
And he's made a difference in your life. And he can make a difference in theirs. Folks, worship is equal part sacrifice and proclamation. Sacrifice, giving back to God in response to what he's given to us. Not our leftovers, but the best we have. And then out of that, we proclaim to others. That other aspect, that other manner of worship is the proclamation that I've tasted and I've found that Jesus is good. And I know that you're tasting all kinds of things out there in the world. For some, that's meth and heroin. For some, it's money and lust and power. For some, it's relationships and being liked by people. I can go all day and what everybody's pursuing. But until you taste Jesus, you'll never find anything that's good. You taste him. You surrender your life to him. And you'll find that there's nothing greater than him. And for those of you who've forgotten how good Christ is, you've come to faith, you've put your faith in him, but somewhere along the journey you've gotten kind of off course and worship is nothing more than Sunday morning and singing a few songs, then it's time to repent. For all that God has given you, why in the world would we give him our leftovers? Father in heaven, you are good and you are righteous, you are holy, you are perfect, and there is none like you. There are no other gods. Every other idea is less than you. Every other thing we give our life to is less than you. Every other thing that we pursue brings destruction and pain into our life. But you, you are altogether good. And you've given us a gift. And that gift is beautiful. It's amazing. It's the gift of a new start. It's the gift of a new life. It's the gift that sets us free from our past and secures for us a brand new future. It's a gift that you will never take away. It's a gift that we cannot earn, but it's given freely. Father, there are some here today and some watching online that need to receive that gift and be changed forever. And Father, then there are others who've forgotten just how beautiful that gift is. And that's why so many other things have crept into our life that we are given attention to because the precious gift that we received and that you changed us, made us new, somehow we've allowed it to grow cold and dark. And for some reason, Lord, we've decided to give our life to rituals and not a vibrant relationship with you. Have your will and your way during this time of commitment. May you be exalted in every place of repentance, every renewed desire to worship, and every person that comes to faith in you, may you be exalted in all of that. We ask all this in Christ's name. Amen. Thank you for tuning in to this week's sermon. For more information about Hyde Park Baptist Church, please check out our website, hydepark.church, or on social media on Facebook and Instagram at Hyde Park Baptist Church.